Hey everyone, you are listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss their favorite works of literature and poetry and how they might shape how we think about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I am one of the principal investigators of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life project, which, along with this podcast, is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. In this episode, titled Elena Ferrante on Friendship and the Intellectual Life, I speak with fellow philosopher Zena Hitz about friendship, the intellectual life, and the virtue of seriousness in Elena Ferrante's wildly popular Neapolitan novels. I hope you enjoy our conversation. grateful and pleased to have Zena Hitz on the podcast this morning. Zena is a tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, where she teaches across the liberal arts. She is currently writing a book on intellectual life and why it matters for Princeton University Press. And that book is based on essays that have appeared in a variety of publications, including First Things, Modern Age, and the Washington Post. Her scholarly work has focused on the political thought of Plato and Aristotle, especially the question of how law cultivates or fails to cultivate human excellence. Zena received an MPhil in classics from Cambridge and studied in the social thought and philosophy programs at the University of Chicago before she got her PhD in philosophy at Princeton. Welcome to the podcast, Zena. Thanks, Jen. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So you chose Elena Fronte's Neapolitan novels for today's episode. I did. Yeah. And as you know, I am completely obsessed with Ferrante and with these novels in particular. But before we dig into any of it, I actually want to start with your latest book, The Intellectual Life, which isn't out yet. It's totally wonderful. And it explores the connections between what we might call the contemplative life and living well or being happy or flourishing. So the first thing that I wanted to do this morning was to invite you just to say something about why you decided to write a book about contemplation and the intellectual life, what you think contemplation or the contemplative life is is really all about, and why you think it's an important part or piece, or maybe even at the center of human happiness. Well, I'll say that I was moved to start writing on the topic of intellectual life, in part because I had decided to come back to teach at St. John's, where I was an undergraduate, where I teach now, and that was just a few years ago. And part of my decision to come back was the sense that our culture is losing its grip on a certain mode of intellectual life that made a big difference in my life and has made a big difference in the lives of a lot of people I know. And it's in a way, even though I don't talk about the college in the book because it's what I'm interested in is much broader than a single institution, a lot of ways that what I'm trying to do is to capture the intellectual spirit that I think is embodied in what we do at, at the college. And I would describe it this way, intellectual life, which I think of as being not a particular vocation necessarily. I mean, it is obviously there are people who like you and I who live the intellectual life that is a life with an intellectual focus. Right. We get paid. We get paid to do it, which is pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. But it's a part of any human life and it's ordinary forms um, seem to me particularly being marginalized at the moment and pushed into corners. So the way I think about intellectual life is it's a way of thinking, reading, studying that has an emphasis on basic human questions, questions about how to live, questions about where the world is, questions about where the world came from, questions that I think basically every human being is interested in, even if not everyone gets the education or the opportunity to really think out these things in detail. There's a sense that thinking intellectual life Uh, intellectual activity matters for how we live. It can change us. It can change the way we think about the world. It can change the way we live our lives. It can change our values and so on. It can be transformative. And I'm thinking of that 
mainly in a positive way in the book, but we'll get to some issues where that comes up, where it could be transformative and not in a positive way. I'm also interested in intellectual life as an open-ended inquiry into basic questions. So in the age of Google in which we live, we think of learning as being the acquisition of information. I think that's a very dangerous uh, perspective. I mean, it's information is very useful. It's very important. I'm grateful for all the technological advances and so on. But we can't think that information and learning are the same thing. So open-ended inquiry into basic human questions where the search is in many ways more important than the goal. What is the goal? I mean, because you've talked about learning, but you haven't said anything about truth yet. One obvious way, or at least one traditional way of thinking about the intellectual life is focused on the pursuit of truth for its own sake. Is that a fair way to characterize it? You know, I don't emphasize that in my writing. I don't actually emphasize truth or beauty or goodness uh, directly, the famous transcendentals. I mean, they're always in a way in the back of my mind. (laughs) So, but... I feel like those words can become uh, sort of rigid and slogany, hard to understand. So the way I think about it is when we ask basic human questions, we're trying to get to the bottom of life. We're trying to get to what matters most. That's the kind of language that I feel more comfortable with than saying it's a search for truth, even though that's obviously the way that many people with intellectual inclinations think. But I want to be very ecumenical, so to speak, very broad in my approach. There are people who undertake intellectual life, intellectual activity, and find that the notion of truth is very hard to grasp, or they discover that the truth is something terrible. These aspects of human intellectual experience, I think, are very important to preserve, and I don't want to sort of rigidly or piously exclude them from what I call intellectual life. And that's actually one of the reasons why I think Ferrante was someone who I wanted to think about in this context is because her world, the truth might be terrible and unbearable in certain ways. And yet there's still a reason to be searching into the depths, to want to get to the bottom of life, to not to live on the surfaces of things. So for me, I, I prefer language of the depths of human questions, of getting to the bottom of life. One way that you actually put it in your manuscript, you say that contemplation is the act of seeing, understanding, and savoring the world as it is. So the world as it is, kind of like reality, the way things are, learning or the contemplative life or the intellectual life is about getting onto that. I'm happy to just call that truth, but you know, if truth is a scary word, then we can just say getting on to reality or the way things are. I think reality is actually more descriptive because wanting what's real feels to me more concrete, more built into regular life, more like the kind of thing that we see in the Neapolitan novels. There's a way in which I don't want to say that these characters are searching for truth, but they definitely are searching for reality. They're definitely honest characters who care about what's real. And I don't know why. I wish I could tell you why that seems to me like a more natural descriptive way of of talking than truth. But anyway, it's what I prefer is the notion of reality. I'm happy to roll with that. Yeah, me too. I'm going to go back to your manuscript a little bit, if that's okay. You talk about the intellectual life or the contemplative life, and you have kind of four ways of describing it. And I just wanted to highlight those. So one is that it forms or shapes the inner life of the person. So you say that Intellectual pursuits provide a place of retreat and reflection. And that kind of leads into your second point, which is that it always involves, to some degree, a withdrawal from the world. And that this withdrawal and the cultivation of your inner life is a source of dignity. And that all sounds like this kind of inward retreat. But the fourth point that you make here, and this I really want to explore when we get to talking about the Neapolitan novels, which is really a novel about friendship, is that it opens the space for communion. So the cultivation of the inner life and this retreat is what makes it possible to enter into a very deep kind of communion with another person. 
And I like all of that. And then you also talk about, and I just wanted to invite you to say more about it. You talk about the difference between the virtue of seriousness and the vice of curiosity, which is something that you're getting from St. Augustine. Can you say more about that? Yes. So I actually, in the a newer version of the manuscript, I translate the Latin curiositas, which is what St. Augustine is really after. I translate that as the love of spectacle. So I get away from translating it as curiosity because I think it's quite confusing, actually, to think of it that way. It really doesn't fit our English notion of curiosity at all. What St. Augustine is interested in, his big example is... Uh, his friend, Alepius, becomes addicted to watching the gladiators. Alepius knows it's, it's vulgar and bad to watch the gladiator matches, but he gets dragged by some friends, and he's there, he's got his eyes covered, he's like, I'm not going to watch this, and the crowd kind of pulls him in, he takes his hands down, and then he can't stop watching them. I think what this opens up for Augustine is part of the human mind, soul, spirit, which gets attached to spectacles and experiences as such. So that can happen with gladiator matches. It can happen with video games. It can happen with the internet. It can happen with pornography. I mean, these, of course, are examples that we know about and not Augustine. For him, it was any kind of lurid fascination, you know, gossip, rubbernecking at traffic accidents, wanting to see dead bodies, wanting to see disease. Well, I think uh, I think a lot about social media and the kind of like voyeurism that social media has just completely normalized. Yes, I think that's right. So I think what struck me once I realized what he was talking about, which is I think this attachment to the experience without it's almost like what we want is the experience without the content. We don't care about what we're getting out of the experience. It's the thrill in the experiencing itself. And that was, I was like, this is how we live. You know, this is really what it's like to live on your screens as we all do. I think there's also something more specifically intellectual about that, which is we can also get attached to the feeling of knowing. So I'm a natural know-it-all. I have been my whole life. Uh, My whole family is know-it-alls. I'm sorry to embarrass you on the internet, guys, but you are. What happens is, you're not interested in the knowledge as such. You want that feeling of knowing. And that's usually in the context of like some kind of social world. So the world of spectacles and the world of experiencing for its own sake and for the feeling of knowing for its own sake, it's in this weird way, a very superficial kind of social activity. You're a spectacle, you're viewing spectacles, you're becoming a spectacle. You have a feeling of knowing that you want to be recognized for. You want to be able to bludgeon unsuspecting ignoramuses with your huge battery of facts. This is not really intellectual life. It's connected to it, but it's not the kind of thing which um, is connected in any way with human flourishing. In fact, I think detrimental it's really to, to a lot of the human goods. So my thought was, Augustine contrasts a person who's curiosus, so who's loves spectacles, with someone who is studiosus, that is often translated studious. I think what he really means is someone who's serious, that is someone who's always trying to keep track of what the most important things are and to be constantly striving for what's past the surface. So intellectual life, as I understand it, in a way, what it is, is it's a movement past whatever is presented to us in experience. It's a way of getting through the superficial, the obvious, the apparent into something else. It's usually something good, something true, something interesting, but sometimes something difficult, something painful, and so on. That reality is past the surfaces. So the virtue of seriousness is a commitment to getting to the bottom of life, to getting past the surfaces. And I find that very useful in thinking about what, in a way, it was another tack on what is authentic intellectual life? How do we distinguish the real thing that's wholesome, that helps human beings, that's a part of human flourishing from things which don't? Being a know-it-all doesn't help anybody, okay? it's just, I mean, it's, it can be just a harmless quirk, but it's not part of being a happy human being. Whereas really striving to get to the bottom of things is. And so one of the ways I capture that is through this idea of the virtue of seriousness. So I'm, thanks for asking about that. I'm, I'm actually super excited about the virtue of seriousness. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm glad that you asked me. <laughs> <laughs>
I can say something else about communion. This is going to take us a little bit out of sequence, but communion, I think, in its simplest way, before we got into, say, what's going on in Ferrante, which is very sophisticated, in the simplest sense, intellectual communion is, I think of two basic examples. One is your high school cafeteria, okay, totally status-driven. The cheerleaders are at one table, the jocks are at one table. It's very much a status-driven environment. And what happens? These two bookworms discover that each loves reading and they bond and they form the deepest friendship that either has ever formed through thinking about books and ideas. That's one kind of example. That's the joyful friendship of bookworms. That's one kind of communion. Just just so you know, Zena, I was a cheerleader. Oh! <laughs> so, you know, I was a cheerleader and a bookworm. It's possible. Anyway, I'm, I'm just going to blow your mind with that fact. Oh, no, I know it's possible. See, I'm, I feel so, now I feel, now I feel bad because I, I don't <laughs> want to get into. It's fine. I, I, I try so hard in my book to, to not to get into uh, this kind of reverse snobbery, which is endemic to intellectuals, where you're just like, okay, you know, I, I, I failed at, I, I failed at dating in high school, but you know what? I'm really smart. So I'm trying not to get into that. So I know that there are many beautiful people who break through all these categories. But anyway, so. You have a status-driven environment, and you've got the two bookworms who find each other and form a friendship. Another kind of example, which I, I think is really important to think about, is, you know, it happens at St. John's all the time. We have these seminar classes. It happens in academic life, too. There's someone who you can't stand. They drive you absolutely bonkers. They're the enemy of everything that you care about, except they want to figure out what's going on in this passage or this problem or this proof just as much as you do. And you're working collaboratively to get to the bottom of something with someone else. And that's a form of communion, too. So it's not just friendship in the sentimental, joyful, happy sense. It's also the deep communion, which gets past superficial social barriers and finds something common that really I think every human being cares about, given the right context. There's an even richer form of communion past friendship where you're connecting with your fundamental humanity, with the things that the human beings care about. And in that space, you can have conversations with all kinds of people, people who you would not normally have anything to do with. So that I want to say is important, too. I just wanted to get that in there because I think that's an important part of how I'm thinking about the communion that intellectual life makes possible. Yeah, well, it's interesting because obviously I don't need to tell you that for Aristotle, the highest activity was contemplating, and it was contemplating the highest object, namely God. And it was, for him, the most godlike thing we could possibly do, because for him, God is just thought, thinking thought. But there's this tension in Aristotle between his claim that in order to be happy, you have to have friends, like friendship is the incredibly central part. He talks about friendship more than he talks about anything else in the Nicomachean Ethics. But then you get to book 10 and you're like, oh, wait, it's all contemplating God and you don't need friends for that. In fact, the reason why it's godlike is that it's not really dependent on anybody else. And so there is kind of this tension. And it's not just in Aristotle. I think it's kind of bound up in the contemplative life between the kind of retreat from the world that you discuss on the one hand, where, okay, I have to get to the bottom of things. And so I, I'm kind of locked away in my cell, otherwise known as my office. Or it's communion and friendship and getting to the bottom of things with others. And I think there is tension there. And I suppose that when the intellectual life is really going well, you're able to navigate those tensions appropriately. But it also is a point of transition to talking about the Neapolitan novels, because one of the central characters, Raffaella Cerullo Lila, as she's known to her friends, and not giving anything away, uh, because it's literally the first scene in the books, she's disappeared. She hasn't been kidnapped. She has, as it were, voluntarily and deliberately erased herself from the world. And one of the things that I struggle with as a reader, as someone who absolutely has come to love both of the women that are 
the main characters in this novel. I mean, I am totally, I don't know how it's possible to fall in love with people who aren't real, but it happens to me all the time. Yes. <laughs> um, but I love them. I care, I care deeply for these people that don't actually exist. But this is something that I don't understand about her and that really touches on the darker side to Lila and also a darker side to her drivenness to understand things. So maybe in order to get to the bottom of this erasure or disappearance, which is one of the central mysteries of the novel, maybe we could just talk about who these women are, their friendship, their time, their context, and sort of apply these ideas about contemplation to the novel. Sure. So Leah Terullo and Elena Greco are the two characters. They're girls born either during the war or just after the war in Naples in an extremely poor neighborhood in uh, post-war Naples after World War II. So they grow up in this environment which is driven by violence, both domestic violence and the violence of criminal networks which own all of the profitable businesses. The craftsmen who might have made a living uh, if the criminal networks didn't dominate are deeply frustrated they take out their frustration in violence against their wives and children, against their neighbors. So the first book especially is full of people being thrown out of windows and fights and all sorts of things. So there's, I think the prevalence of violence in the books is important. So these two girls are both very intelligent. They excel in school. And the four novels tells the story of how each of them in very different ways makes their way out of this poverty and violence in which they're born. And Lenu, who's the narrator, Elena Greco, she goes by Lenu, which is how I think of her, so I'll call her Lenu. She makes her way out through excelling in school, going to high school, which no one in her family has ever gone to, going to university, and then marrying a professor and embarking on a career as a writer. So she kind of just launches herself out of the neighborhood and into sort of middle-class intellectual world. Leela has a much more tumultuous path. So she drops out of school after fifth grade. She gets married to the grocer who's a, um, a sort of predator and abuser. Uh, she escapes barely with her life. She works in a factory, which is also a highly abusive, violent environment. She finally escapes that and founds a, a software company and becomes middle class and powerful herself towards the end of the four novels. So that's kind of the basic picture of the novels. And the friendship between the two women is, as you said... It's a novel about friendship. And I think for me, Leela's disappearance at the beginning is part of what's really interesting and distinctive about her character. So on the one hand, Leela is extremely aware, in a way that Lanu is not, and the other characters in the book are not, of violence and chaos, of the fact that they live in a chaotic, violent universe. On the one hand, that's something she's afraid of and that she builds up her life in response to. That is, she builds a little inner citadel based on learning and reflection and thinking and loving as best she can. That's a kind of a way of insulating herself from what comes in from the outside. I think it's important that at least until, I'm not sure at what point in her marriage she stops, but at least until her late teens, early 20s, she's a writer. She's a very disciplined writer. She doesn't show anyone her writings, but she's a very disciplined and incredibly talented writer. Should we read a description of her notebooks? Yeah, absolutely. It's at the beginning of the story of the new name. It's the second novel in the series, and what's happened is that Leela has kept these notebooks her whole life, and she's given them to Lenu for safekeeping because she's afraid her husband is going to find them and destroy them. Or beat her up, as he is wont to do. <laughs> yes. Okay, so here we are in a story of the new name. So when she, that is Leela, asked me, that's Lenu the narrator, to swear that I wouldn't open the box for any reason, I swore. But as soon as I was on the train, I untied the string, took out the notebooks, began to read... It wasn't a diary, although there were detailed accounts of the events in her life, starting with the end of elementary school. Rather, it seemed evidence of a stubborn self-discipline in writing, 
The pages were full of descriptions, the branch of a tree, the ponds, a stone, a leaf with its white veinings, the pots in the kitchen, the various parts of a coffee maker, the brazier, the coal and bits of coal, a highly detailed map of the courtyard, the broad avenue of Stradone, the rusting iron structure beyond the ponds, the gardens and the church, the cut of the vegetation along the railway, the new buildings, her parents' house, the tools her father and brother used to repair shoes, their gestures when they worked, and above all, colors, the colors of every object at different times of day. So these notebooks are a symbol of Leela's inner life. Not just a symbol, they're an expression of it. And part of that is really an illustration of the general features of intellectual life I'm concerned with in the book. It's her inner life, and the social world of the Neapolitan novels is extremely competitive, extremely violent, extremely status-driven. And so it's crucial for for Leela especially to withdraw from it, to find her own space of contemplation. Now, I think what happens, ironically, is she wants not to be used. That's made evident in a beautiful passage towards the end of the four novels, which we can read in a minute. But she doesn't want to be used by her social world. She doesn't want to be used as a vehicle for children. She doesn't want to be used as a status symbol. She doesn't want to be used by the Solara brothers and their criminal networks. She wants to her own integrity to be protected against the social environment and the violence of the world. So she retreats into herself. And that's symbolized in a number of ways. It's the hidden notebooks. It's the books that she writes and then destroys she writes a novel as a child called The Blue Fairy that she throws in the fire. She writes a huge book about Venice towards the end of the novels, which then no one ever sees or reads. So her art and her writing are trapped in herself. They don't go anywhere. And that for me is very interesting because, of course, I want to say, oh, the English love is this beautiful thing. It's, it's your inner life. Well, it needs to be something more than that. There's something off about Leela's complete inwardness. It's like things are trapped and die within her. And I think that's connected to her disappearance is she doesn't want to be used. The world is a place of use. And the easiest way not to be used is not to be. So she's, she's the opposite, the complete opposite of Lenu, who is totally status-driven, who always knows what everyone thinks of her, who every single thing she writes is published, brings her fame and acclaim or negative attention, sometimes also a notoriety of certain kinds, but it's always out there. So she's kind of the image of what you might call a, a superficial intellectual, someone who's not living a real intellectual life where everything's totally competitive, everything's status-driven, everything's out in the world, everything's for impressing other people. I agree with everything that you're saying, but I don't want to be too harsh on her because I think it's all born out of this insecurity. Like, Lenu is so insecure in every way. She's just so much self-doubt. And so she has this need for approval that is not in Leela. I think that's right. And I think that's also connected to her story, which I think is so common among professional intellectuals, where she comes from. She comes from this poor, violent neighborhood where no one has gone to school. And she's entering this middle-class life. So she always feels like a phony. It's imposter syndrome is what we call it. So yes, that's definitely true. She feels this emptiness because she's in a world that she doesn't strictly belong to. What I want to get to, and it's taking me a while to say it, unfortunately, is that the beauty of the novels and what I think is fascinating is that in their friendship, the friendship between Lenu and Leela, each of these faults is somehow overcome. So Lenu's empty status-driven nature and and Leela's tendency to just be so inwardly drawn that she disappears from the world. In their collaboration, in their friendship, something else happens. And what you get is art that really matters, that reflects the reality they grew up in, that means something to other people. It's somehow, it's in the dynamics between Lenu's ambition and Leela's inwardness that you get a real meaningful sense of intellectual work, art, a way of restoring meaning to a world that's basically empty. That's what I think is so beautiful and exciting about these novels is that that friendship as something which produces meaning and saves the characters from the worst aspects of their environment.
I think that's right. I mean, I just have two remarks about that. One is that at the very beginning in My Brilliant Friend, when Leela's son calls to tell Lenu that his mother has disappeared. And of course, she's angry, but she's not surprised. And she says, I'm not going to let her disappear. I'm going to write her story. And so the whole novel is this act of refusing to let Leela disappear. But also one of the incredible scenes to me is when she has this one day with her father, Lenu. Her father takes her out of the neighborhood, which is this very confined, impoverished space. And he takes her out into Naples, this wider context. And she's overwhelmed by the beauty of the city, by the history of the city, by the sea, which it seems like she's never experienced before. And it talks about this unforgettable moment where she's on this street with her father, and all of a sudden you can see the ocean. So this is page 138. Oh, but what a sea. It was very rough and loud. The wind took your breath away, pasted your clothes to your body, and blew the hair off your forehead. We stayed on the other side of the street in a small crowd watching the spectacle. The waves rolled in like blue metal tubes carrying an egg white of foam on their peaks, then broke in a thousand glittering splinters and came up to the street with an O of wonder and fear from those watching. What a pity that Leela wasn't there. I felt dazed by the powerful gusts, by the noise. I had the impression that, although I was absorbing much of that sight, many things, too many, were scattering around me without letting me grasp them. And then she talks about how, if Lila were there with her, they could capture it. So she says, I, I and Lila, we too with that capacity together, only together, We had to seize the mass of colors, sounds, things, and people. We had to express it and give it its true power. So it's like she understands their relationship. You know, as you say, not not just getting to the bottom of things, but being able to translate those experiences, like really seeing reality and putting it into words. Because one of the things that she's so impressed with in Leela is Leela's ability to write. When there's this part of the novel where Lenu is is on Ishia and it's kind of like a vacation, but she spends a lot of her time writing letters to Leela. And then finally Leela writes back and her letters make Lenu feel ashamed because her letters are so deep and profound. And she's like, oh my gosh, why, you know, my letters are so trite and, and everything that's happening, like I can't find the words. There's a definite competitive edge to this. Oh, for sure. There's tons of aggression between the two. This is one of the things I find so amazing about the novels, setting aside what they say about intellectual life. It is a picture of friendship that is so true and so real. And I feel like I've never read about it in literature before. I think especially friendship between women. Exactly. Yeah, and the ways that it can get competitive. and Right, they compete over men. They compete in school. They have these acts of aggression towards each other. And even as you pointed out, at the beginning, when, when Lenu says, you know what, I'm going to keep Leela from disappearing because I'm going to write our story. In a way, that's an act of aggression. And in another way, it's the expression of what's most profound about their friendship, namely their collaborative imagining of the world around them. One of the passages that's like the one that you read, where she says, if Lila were here, we could capture this in words. Another part earlier in My Brilliant Friend, she says, Lila and Lenu are strolling the neighborhood, and she describes it We were 12 years old, but we walked along the hot streets of the neighborhood amid the dust and flies that the occasional old trucks stirred up as they passed, like two old ladies taking the measure of lives of disappointment, clinging tightly to one each other. So they have this fascination with reality and this desire to reimagine it, and they need each other to do it. Lenu needs Leela because she feels like Leela has all the energy. And she may be, of course, not a reliable narrator in that respect. She may have more going on in her than she's willing to admit to herself. And then Leela needs her because otherwise the art and the thought and the contemplation is just trapped in her and it dies with her. 
they need each other to engage in this activity. I think it's almost like a godlike activity to reimagine the world, to put a narrative around it, to put the fragments of experience together. It is the way that they, you know, find meaning in their universe such as it is. To go back to Leela and her inwardness, I think some of it is a natural disposition in her But I also think that some of it is self-protective because, as you say, Leela, even more so than Lenu, is the victim of so much male violence from her father, from her brother, from her husband, and even from the Solera brothers. And from her boss at the factory. No, it's true. She is very much uh, subject to violence throughout the novels, up, up until the end, actually. Yeah, she's an object of violence, and she has this kind of inner strength, a stubbornness. Leela is extremely stubborn. I think she refuses to be broken by the violence, but she also refuses to be used, particularly by the men in her life. So one of the first instances of this is her complete and total rejection of Marcello Solera. And her holding a knife to his throat. I mean, that's what's really the astonishing, right? He he tries to get her into his car. And she tries to kill him. It's amazing. No, she really, she's fearless in ways that are a huge contrast with Lenu, who, who is very afraid of many things. She's sort of fearless But her inwardness is like the stubborn refusal to be used by men and also to be broken by them. There's a dark edge to it. But there's also this theme throughout the novels, and it's associated with Leela. So Leela has these experiences where she calls it dissolving margins. So she has these experiences where things lose their margins or their shapes or their forms. And her vision of the world and of certain people starts to disintegrate or lose its integrity. These are experiences that I do think scare her, that Lenu can't really understand. I'm still struggling what to make of them, but I have to think that it's related to this broader theme of the writer is someone who's imposing form onto the world onto these experiences and giving it shape. And Leela is a writer, at least for much of her life. I think at some point it seems that she stops. And there's a question about why that is. I mean, she retreats from books and writing at a certain point in her life. But this idea of seeing a kind of formlessness in the world and a, and a kind of chaos that is that is really terrifying, which she calls dissolving margins. I wonder, what do you make of that? So I too, I think these novels are incredibly rich. And I, I feel like in my work on them, for the sake of my book, I really just latched on to a little edge of them. And I feel like the dissolving margins is one of the images that's extremely deep. And probably there's 10 million ways to think about it. It's a sign of the sort of majesty of these novels that we can do that. My thought is just this. and I think it's, I'm sure it's too simple. She has that experience of dissolving margins for the first time when she sees her brother, Reno, who's been um, a wonderful brother who's cared for her. And he all of a sudden becomes a very violent in this New Year's Eve competition with fireworks with the Solara brothers. He becomes violent and angry and he doesn't seem to notice her. And so it's the loss in that moment of this person who was her source of support, her sort of only island in a world that's very hostile to her. And she suddenly realizes she has to fend for herself. So that, that's one way that the margins dissolve. That is the margins of a person's character. They're wonderful and supportive. And then all of a sudden they're not, you know. Another is I, I think it has a lot to do with her her vision of the cosmos as being this chaotic, violent thing, as being something which essentially has no margins, where it's chaotic movement of stuff and what you get caught in is completely arbitrary. And I think it's worth reading that. So at the end of My Brilliant Friend, I'll just read this section. She says in dialect, Lenu has just a discourse on the Holy Spirit that she's done for school, so at her theology class. So she says, you still waste time with those things, Lenu. We are flying over a ball of fire. The part that has cooled floats on the lava. On that part, we construct the buildings, the bridges, and the streets. 
And every so often, the lava comes out of Vesuvius or causes an earthquake that destroys everything. There are microbes everywhere that make us sick and die. There are wars. There is a poverty that makes us all cruel. Every second, something might happen that will cause you such suffering that you'll never have enough tears. That's, I think, Leela's vision of the world. Well, yes, but if you keep reading, it's even darker. I mean, she says, what are you doing with all this Holy Spirit nonsense? Forget it. It was the devil who invented the world, not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right. I guess I interpret that as a way of saying the world is utterly indifferent. I don't think of it as being malevolent. Of course, though, you do. That makes me wonder. Now I'm thinking off the fly, but it's not just an indifferent world, right? It's also a violent, malevolent world, the social world that they live in. So that's worth thinking about. Naples itself is described as, on the one hand, a place of beauty and history and somewhat faded glory, but it's also a place of poverty, violence, and absolute chaos and instability. So there's actually this really wonderful passage. She's talking to Lenu's daughter, Emma, and she's talking to her about Naples. So here's the quote. Ah, what a city, said Aunt Lena to my daughter. What a splendid and important city. Here all the languages are spoken, Emma. Here everything was built and everything was destroyed. Here the people don't trust talk and are very talkative. Here is Vesuvius, which reminds you every day that the greatest undertakings of powerful men, the most splendid work, can be reduced to nothing in a few seconds by the fire, the earthquake, the ash, and the sea. Yes, this is such a great and important and rich city, but it can all collapse in a second. And be reduced to nothing. And, you know, she's just sort of casually saying this to the young daughter. But I think that is her vision. And it has to do, now that I think about it, with the dissolving margins. It's like no matter how much you work, whether you're a writer or just a person to try to keep the shape of things together, there's this tendency for things to dissolve. And it is scary. And I think that Leela sees that in a way, and in almost a kind, of, a kind of mystical way. And I think maybe that's part of her retreat as well. I think that's right. The way I might try to summarize it, knowing that I'm leaving something out, because I really think it is rich and at the heart of these novels in a way that is, at this point, sort of past my fathoming. On the one hand, it's the, the dissolution of a person's character. On the other hand, it's this cosmic dimension that Mount Vesuvius can erupt and everything that you've built up can be destroyed. There's also another aspect to it that I think is connected to what we were talking about earlier in terms of her retreat from a world of violent men and her extreme inwardness. I think it has to do also with death in an obvious way, the fact that everyone's going to die, and then also the way that sex is tied into death. It's this old slogan, you know, the angel of death hovers over the marriage bed. And the, the reason why I think that is because I think another key scene is towards the end of My Brilliant Friend, right before she's going to be married. She sees a pot, a copper pot explode, and she's overcome with fear at getting married. So it's her virginity is this sort of beautiful thing, which she's protected. And of course, she's a very beautiful young woman. She's kept it to herself, and it is on the verge of being destroyed very violently. But she's raped, basically. She is raped uh, throughout her marriage. And of course, it's also, even if she weren't raped, it's part of the sort of lot of a woman, right? So the sex and then childbearing, and then you lose your shape. That's another kind of dissolving boundaries, right? That your shape becomes distended. So it's a funny mixture of a deep, almost mystical awareness of, of death and chaos, cosmic chaos, and then also a sense of, I don't know how to put it more clearly, but the destructiveness that's inherent in natural human relationships and how they too are, are windows into a world of death. I mean, I think that's the best I can do for the dissolving boundaries and just holding my hand back in awe that these novels have many, many depths and many riches. These novels, they're so, I have to say that I read these novels in like a frenzy last summer. And when I finished, 
I just, I cried. I think I cried for like an hour and my husband was like, you know, oh my goodness, what's happening? And I think he just, and I also read them postpartum. And so I think he just thought, all right, well, she's totally nuts. And that, that may have been true. I don't know. But I went back and and reread them when I was not postpartum, which is an interesting phase in a woman's life. But, and and it still had that same effect on me. Like just, I felt completely devastated (laughs) at the end of these novels. And I think part of it was, I just, like I said, I I, I really fell in love with actually the three main characters. I I kind of love Nino too. We're not going to talk about Nino. That that would be a different episode, but I know I'm supposed to hate him, but God, I really love Nino. Nino, just so people know, Nino is the one man that both of these women fall in love with. Uh, And he's a total jerk, but anyway. (laughs) He's a predator, actually. I mean, let's face it. Yeah, it's very, extremely devastating. And I don't want to give away the ending because I I don't want to go in for spoilers, but it's not a happy ending, (laughs) to put it mildly. (laughs) So I guess in thinking about the way that I feel, the way that these novels make me feel, which is a strange mixture of hopelessness and a feeling like I've been somehow transformed nevertheless. I just wonder what we can really learn from the novel about love. I mean, and especially the love between these two women for one another, because one of the things that I really appreciate about Ferrante is her frankly brutal honesty about human beings and about human friendships and the way that everything is very complicated and there are all these tensions and and none of it really gets worked out, which I think is also a a very honest thing because frankly, in human life, nothing ever really gets worked out. But the love that these two women have for one another, I wondered if we could say something just just to kind of wrap things up here about how how to characterize that love and, and how to think about maybe how it's related to what I think is the cement of their friendship, which is their shared quest to, as you say, get to the bottom of things, but specifically get to the bottom of things in a way that is to understand them and to be able to express them in words, to be able to capture them the way they really are. I'm finding myself not quite having the words, but let me try. It's... It is hard to find the words. They... I don't know that either of them would get to the bottom of things without each other. So certainly Lenu, at least on her account, which of course is unreliable, but if we trust her even a little bit, she's not going to be. She she would become like Nino, sort of status-driven, fake intellectual, without Leela. She feels that way. So Leela helps her get to the bottom of things, and Lenu helps her to live in an enduring way. All of the beauty, the experiences, the thoughts, the sort of fruits of her deep reflection on the world in her writing. So now that's very kind of intellectualized because they're also, these women love each other. They take care of each other in a way that no one else does. So when each of them is in their worst moment, you know, I'm thinking about Lenu, who's found Nino sleeping with the maid and she's got her baby with no diapers and she's in the car and she's going. She is helpless. And who helps her? It's Leela. And Leela, when she's working for the factory and she's sick and she's being gruesomely abused at work and she doesn't have enough money, it's Lenu who comes and helps her out. So there's a deep care that they have for one another that I think without that, it would be a kind of empty intellectual exercise. One of the things I admire really about the novels is that they're in a way very much a classic modern novel. You know, what is the world like without God? Okay, it looks something like this. In another way, its honesty is really true to kind of a basic human experience. The novels are readable. They've got a story. They've got characters. It's not like this massive abstraction like Joyce or Wolf. And there's 
a recognizable friendship that you can see from your life. So I think she's really, I mean, this might be too cheesy or corny or something, but she's offering to people who live in her world, a world without God, a sense of what matters in it, which is real personal care for between human beings, real friendship, and the kind of reflection that feeds it. And that, you know, there's a reciprocal feeding, right? The friendship feeds the reflection, the reflection feeds the friendship. And so I, I think that's what is meant to be offered by it. Well, yeah. And I think I now have gone through these novels. And I should say, I mean, this is like two, at least 2,000 pages. I mean, it's, it's, it's massive. <laughs> and I really did read them in this wild frenzy. And they do lend themselves to that. They're very gripping. It's hard to put them down. But one thing that I'll say just to kind of get back to where we started with this idea of kind of disappearance or doing this kind of writing for its own sake, there is the fact that the author of these novels, we don't actually know who she is. So Elena Ferrante is a pseudonym. Now, there are all of these guesses about who she really is, but I don't want to get into that. She doesn't want to be known. The author of these novels doesn't want to be known. And I think that's significant. I agree with you. It's, it's her form of disappearance. It's her imitation of Leela, you know, to be anonymous. And I'm sure it's something similar. She doesn't want to be uh, used as an author by our literary culture and by our media culture, as she most certainly, I mean, I, you know, again, we know that she, I guess someone has outed her, but, you know, that's not what she wanted. She did not want to be subject to a, pu a public life. She wanted her books to speak for themselves. I think so. And I also think she wanted these books to be honest. And I, and I think that honesty is, honesty about human beings is hard. Oh my gosh. It's the hardest thing. Because when you're honest about human beings, it's unpleasant. And I think she wanted to be free to explore that unpleasantness without all of the fears and anxieties and problems that come from writing about us in a, in a really honest way. Let me just say one more thing about that that can expect to what you were talking about earlier about the uh, love of spectacles and uh, the virtue of seriousness, that that pain of honesty, I think is the earmark of a serious approach to something. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, okay, if we have this capacity to live at the surfaces, to like live for bare experience and be trapped there, even though frankly, we hate it, right? It's not satisfying. It makes us depressed. It makes us anxious. We all know this. It's all documented. Um, why do we want to say that? Well, because reality hurts. Like reality is... It requires a kind of basic asceticism to live your life with reality. It hurts. That's why I think that Ferrante is such a great example of, you know, the virtue of seriousness, both her characters and the exercise, because that honesty is a way of getting past the surfaces and into the depths of things. And we have to follow that where each person has to follow that where it takes them. It's not, uh, you can't force a route you know, into the depths, you have to experience the world as you experience it honestly. Right. It's brutal. And that's kind of how the novel ends. And no, but that's, I, I couldn't agree more with all of that. And so for that reason, I, I think we'll just, we'll end it there because yes, I, I think, I think that's exactly right. Zena, thank you so much. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for inviting me. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy podcast that is part of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life project, which is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. For more resources on the works discussed in today's episode, head on over to our project's website, virtue.uchicago.edu, and check out our blog, thevirtueblog.com. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, do me a big favor and give us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Bye.